This morning, I want to begin by asking a question that we all need to answer, which is this. What does it mean to be a good person? For many, the answer to this question is usually assumed before the question is ever asked. We pride ourselves on being good, especially in the South. Even though we might do things wrong at times, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't believe that we're all that bad. In fact, bad is not a word that we would ever think about using for ourselves. Sure, we aren't perfect, but then again, who is, right? We all struggle. That's just a part of life. In fact, the musician Kid Rock summed it up best when he said, I think generally I'm a pretty good person if I had to grade myself or toot my own horn. Yet, are we really good? And if so, what standard are we using to measure ourselves? In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to deliver some really bad news to us that we don't want to hear, but which we need to hear. Why? Because if we truly want to understand the gospel and how it applies to our lives, then we have to understand how bad our situation really is and how much we truly need the gospel. So if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans 3, as we look at verses 9 to 20, which is also found in your pew Bibles on page 940. The Apostle writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Beginning in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul has been building his argument to show all of us who we really are without Christ and the gospel work in our lives. After telling us that the unbelieving Gentile who doesn't know God's law is still accountable to God because God has written his law on their hearts, and that the moralistic Jew who has God's law and strives to keep it will be judged by God according to the law, in one broad stroke, Paul declares that before God, both groups are guilty of treason against their Creator and deserving of his judgment and wrath. But why? In verses 9 through 12, the first reason that he gives is that 
Our guilt is a result of our moral condition. In verse 9, Paul writes these words, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In this verse, I want you to notice two things. First, when Paul says, are we Jews any better off? He's including himself in that sentence, which really does amaze me. Why? Because it shows the result of the power of the gospel at work in a person's life, helping them to see who they truly are before God, which is the only standard that really matters. For Paul, he understands how powerful the gospel is because it changed his life. At one time, Paul was a man who was highly esteemed because of his incredible credentials in regard to the law. And it was these credentials that drove his zeal to persecute the very church that he's now leading. But as a result of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, he tells us in another of his epistles that none of those credentials had any value in his eyes or in God's and were therefore worthless when seen in the light of the gospel. Why? This leads to the second thing I want you to notice in verse 9, which is that without the gospel in our lives, we are all under sin. Said another way, as a result of the fall, unless we believe and trust in what God has done for us in Christ, then we are ruled or dominated by the sin in our lives, and therefore under the judgment of God. This is why Paul's credentials were worthless. Even though as a Jew who had the law and had tons of accolades that proved to those around him what an upright Jew he really was, which he lists in Philippians 3, 5 through 6, those accolades in reality had no value or worth in addressing his true spiritual state or standing before God. And for many, even in our day, this rings true. Maybe even for some in this very sanctuary. Let me ask you an honest question. Is there anything in your life that you think is going to help put you in right standing with God other than the fact that you have placed your trust in Christ? Be honest with yourself. Is there anything? If so, then the words that Paul's about to share with us are going to come across as really bad news. And they should, because Paul wants to make sure that we don't misunderstand who we really are as people before God because of our sin. And as a result, how important the gospel really is to us. See, according to the scriptures, we are not good people who need a little help to get us into heaven. Ask the average person why they think they should go to heaven. And the typical response is because they're a good person. But that's not really who we are, at least from God's perspective. Who are we? Look at verses 10 to 12. Using various scriptures from the Old Testament to support what he's saying, Paul point, paints a picture of who we are with these words. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. What does he mean? Well, regarding how righteous we think we are outside of the gospel, Paul wants us to know that we're not. Only God is righteous because only he can meet the righteous standard that he has set. We can't meet that standard, which the law shows us, even though we still find ourselves trying to from time to time. That's why it's interesting to do a word study on the word righteous and to discover that one of the places this word pops up is in, is in Matthew 23, 27 to 28, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Without the gospel, this is what many resort to, outwardly appearing righteous to others, but within they're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. But that's not all. Not only are we not righteous in ourselves, but as verse 11 tells us, there's nothing in us that can understand God or even wants to seek Him. Because we're all born under sin, by nature, we do not want to exert any effort to find out or learn about God, which is what the word seek means in the original language. If left ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. This is our true spiritual state without the gospel at work in our lives. Rather, our desire is by nature to turn aside from Him and to live only for ourselves, no longer putting our trust or confidence in him as our creator, which was the original intent. And what's the result of all this? Paul says that we have become worthless or useless by engaging in behavior that's wrong and harmful to ourselves and others as we seek our own glory rather than our creator's. And this is why Paul says at the end of verse 12 that no one does good, not even one. From a biblical perspective, good is not defined by the sporadic nice things that we do for others, which, if we're really honest, are mostly done for our own glory and recognition. Rather, it's a kindness that one extends to another who is ungrateful, selfish, and self-centered, in the same way that God does to us. In fact, Paul's already used this word before in his letter when he said this in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is the kind of good that Paul's talking about, which is foreign to all of us because of sin, but which we see reflected in the cross. This is why Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton was correct when he responded to a newspaper that posed the question, what's wrong with the world? With a brief letter of response saying, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. 
Because of our natural moral condition, we're all guilty as charged before a holy and just God. Yet for many, this is still not proof enough that we're worthy of deserving God's wrath. So Paul takes it a step further by showing that we're not only guilty because of our moral condition, but also because our guilt is manifested in our actions. This past week, I read an article put out by the Barna Institute ranking the top 100 Bible-minded cities in the country. Now, what does it mean to be Bible-minded? It is defined as individuals who report reading the Bible in a typical week and who strongly assert the Bible is accurate in the principles it teaches. And guess which city ranked at number one in the country? Birmingham, Alabama. Now, that's really interesting to me, considering the fact that this past December, there was an article ranking the 10 most dangerous cities in the country, in which Birmingham was ranked number six. Does that make any sense to anybody? You would think that the most Bible-minded city in the country should be much farther down the list of violent cities, wouldn't you? How does that work? Well, in my opinion, it only goes to show what Paul is saying to the church at Rome, which is that just because we have God's Word and strongly assert its accuracy in the principles that it teaches doesn't mean that we have or even understand the gospel. As Paul wants to show us in verses 13 through 18, though we may say we value something, our actions oftentimes betray us. How? In two ways. First, in the words that we speak, and second, in the ways that we act. By showing us in the previous section how our guilt before God is a result of our moral condition, in this section, Paul expands it by showing how our rejection of God is also manifested in how we treat each other. Look at what he says. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Now for us to understand this, we have to keep in mind who Paul is talking to and what point he's trying to make. He's talking to both Gentile and Jewish believers who are divided over the role that the law plays in the life of the believer. And he's trying to get them to see how they need to return to the truth of the gospel. And the only way to do this is by getting them to see in what ways they're not applying the gospel to their lives, but rather resorting to their old unregenerate habits and mindset. Remember, Paul just corrected them in a previous section regarding the judgmental spirit that some of the Jews had towards some of the Gentile believers. There, they were said to be judging others even though they were doing the very same things. Here, I think Paul wants us to see that when we do that, we have stopped clinging to the gospel and are resorting instead to our own sinful rules of engagement. What does the heart of a person look like who is disconnected from the gospel and as a result clings to their own righteousness, believer and unbeliever alike? 
You see a hint of it in the things that they say and the things that they do. Listen to how the New Living Translation interprets verses 13 through 18. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. Believer, let me ask you a question. As you hear these words, can you see yourself in them at all? For the husband or wife who is frustrated with either their spouse or their kids, does the foul language and destructive words that can come out of our mouths at the height of our frustration find any application in Paul's words here? For the college student hanging out with their friends, maybe even after a campus crusade or RUF meeting, yet who secretly struggles with pornography or even in their sexual relationship with the person that they're dating, do these words have any bearing on your soul? For the Christian businessman who is a deacon at his church yet is embezzling thousands from his company on a monthly basis, do these words expose life for what it is? A life disconnected from the gospel, hidden behind a mask of righteousness and bogged down in sin for which you have supposedly been set free. How does this happen? Look again at verse 18 where Paul says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the issue plaguing both the believer and the Christian who has stopped clinging to the gospel. They no longer fear God. What does Paul mean by fear in this passage? Here he has in mind the idea of respect, reverence, or awe. And why should we fear him? For the unbeliever, God should be feared simply because he's God, the creator of the universe, and the one who is going to judge them based on their deeds, which are a result of their rejection of God. But for the believer, we should fear God not only because he's God, but also because of the kindness, forbearance, and patience that he constantly shows to us, which should lead us to repentance, and which is the gospel. This is why we should fear God. And this is why God's glory, rather than our own, should be our greatest pursuit. For as John Piper says, when the glory of God is the treasure of our lives, we will not lay up treasures on earth, but spend them for the spread of His glory. We will not covet, but overflow with liberality. We will not crave the praise of men, but forget ourselves in praising God. We will not be mastered by sinful, sensual pleasures, but sever their root by the power of a superior promise. We will not nurse a wounded ego or cherish a grudge or nurture a vengeful spirit, but will hand over our cause to God and bless those who hate us. Every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. Christian, have you lost sight of the glory of God? Do you no longer fear the one who not only created the heavens and the earth, but 
has come in human form to free you from your sin, who is constantly extending his grace, mercy, and kindness to you, even as you continue in that sin? Have you become so comfortable with God that you have forgotten where you came from, the original sin that you were born into, and about the outcome that awaits those who, if left unchanged, must face when he returns as judge? Do your actions prove in the things that you say and do that as hard as it is at times, you are trusting in the gospel? Or do they reveal that you aren't but are merely trying to look the part? Take an honest look at your heart and realize that if you are trying to look the part, you won't be able to for very long because as Paul tells us in verses 19 to 20, our guilt is revealed by the law. Here's the honest truth. Though we might be able to outwardly appear righteous to others, making them believe we're more spiritual than we really are, while within we're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, we can't fool God. He knows our hearts. And this is why Paul once again brings us back to the law. Because without the law, the gospel would make no sense and has no value in our lives. See, there are three reasons why the law was given. First, it was given to restrain evil in society by letting us know what is right and wrong in the eyes of God. Second, it makes the sinner aware of their sin before God, which in turn drives them to Christ. And third, it gives guidance to believers to live the Christian life. And that's why Paul's words are so important to us in this last section. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, the law is still in effect because God is still God and his standard hasn't changed. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that whenever we stop clinging to the gospel, which is trusting Jesus with our lives and destiny because of what he's accomplished for us through his death and resurrection on the cross. We put ourselves under the standards of the law and back under judgment. I know that sounds harsh, but listen to what he's saying. In effect, he's saying, if you ever get to a point where you think you can actually do in your own strength what the law requires of you, in the way that the law requires it, You are deluding yourselves. You can't. It's impossible. And that's why every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. Because of the law, we realize our guilt before a holy God, that we aren't good people by nature and never will be outside of Christ. That when we try to be good, eventually our actions are going to give us away in what we say and do. And that the law serves as a roadblock to stop us from trying to go down the road of self-righteousness that we all want to travel down. Get the picture Paul's painting. It's a courtroom setting. You're standing before the judge. You think that the charges brought against you might be too extreme or maybe that you don't even deserve to be there. But when the charges are read, You have only one response. You're speechless. 
You can't say a word because you know you're guilty. And as Paul says, accountable to God. What does he mean by accountable to God? This is how the New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner defines it. The word in the Greek conveys the state of an accused person who cannot reply at the trial initiated against him because he has exhausted all possibilities of refuting the charge against him and averting the condemnation and its consequences which inescapably follow. All people without exception have no arguments to plead in self-defense before God. They all deserve condemnation and judgment. That's the reality. And why? Because as Paul says in the last verse, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Yet here's the dilemma. If there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God, which is what the phrase to be justified means, then what hope do we have? You're guilty. I'm guilty. The whole world is guilty as charged before our Creator and Judge and deserving whatever punishment He chooses to give us. We can't argue with Him because He's not going to listen. We can't state our case because we don't have one. We are guilty as charged. The evidence is presented and reveals to all that we are not good people before God. And in fact, we can't be in our own strength. And there's no defense that we can offer or proof to show that we're not guilty because not only does our speech and do our actions prove us wrong, but the law does as well. It's a hopeless, dire, terrible situation that we're in, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves from the judgment and punishment we deserve. The law has spoken and made its judgment. But that's not the end of the story. For God has responded to our need through His Son, which is the gospel, and which is our only hope against getting what we deserve or being deceived into believing that we would ever be good enough to earn any favor from God based on our own self-righteousness. Why? Because He loves us. It's that simple, and yet that incomprehensible, all at the same time. This is the gospel. Let's pray together.